This is Menagerie. Bartholomew Chesney was a young lawyer in 1508. They didn't give the good cases to young lawyers. Older, more experienced attorneys didn't have to defend small mobs from charges of stealing barley, even if stealing barley was a pretty serious crime in 1508. Though Chesney had only been practicing the law for a few years, he knew sloppy work when he saw it, and the complaint lodged against his clients was sloppy, from top to bottom. For one thing, the local magistrate had posted just one petition alerting the defendants to their trial date, but his clients were scattered far and wide throughout the province of Autun. Many of them would never see the complaint. Through no fault of their own, they would miss their only chance to defend themselves against the charges. The complaint wasn't good enough. Chassany knew it, and he thought that the courts knew it too. The rest of the case could wait. Whatever else happened, he was going to make sure that his clients at least knew that they were supposed to show up to be tried. So Chesney filed a protest over the inadequate notice. And he won. The hearing was delayed so that copies of the complaint could be posted at every church parish in the province. Now, none of the accused could claim ignorance of the proceedings. Even with more time to prepare, though, the deadline for the appearance came and went, and Chesney's clients were no-shows. But, like any good attorney, he was prepared for this. When the trial date came, he argued that while his clients had been notified of their responsibility to appear, the court had made no provision to guarantee their safety as they traveled to meet justice. The entire province, Chesney railed, was overflowing with enemies looking to do his clients harm. In this, Chesney had a point. His clients, after all, were a swarm of rats. Every cat and dog in the parish was their mortal enemy, the attorney argued, and making them run the gauntlet of these constant hazards on the way to the courthouse was too great an imposition. Now, while the barley-stealing rats of Autun were notable in having a particularly good lawyer, they were by no means alone in needing legal representation. During the Middle Ages, all over Europe, rats, cows, pigs, goats, fish, and even swarms of locusts were regularly tried in courts. They were called to answer for everything from property crimes like stealing barley or illegally occupying a house to capital offenses like murder. When animal trials were at their most popular from the 11th century to the 15th, most European court systems were a strange blend of civil and church authority. That meant that, rather than going before a judge, bothersome animals like flies, mice, and eels were usually made to answer to God's law. Representatives of the church were called upon to try these creatures and, if they were found guilty, to render their verdict by anathematizing the beasts. Now, in the medieval church, pronouncing an anathema on something, person or animal, was a punishment similar to excommunication. But unlike excommunication, placing an anathema on something didn't just remove it from the church. It put it out of the sight of God, banishing the subject altogether. During the 15th century, the Bishop of Lausanne in Switzerland pronounced an anathema on the fish of Lake Lehman, now known as Lake Geneva. The lake had been swarming with eels, so the bishop invoked the power of God to cast them out and make the waters suitable for bathing and drinking once more or at least as suitable as water gets when it is used for both bathing and drinking. Anathemas weren't always the result of formal trials, either. Religious officials could, and sometimes did, pronounce these curses all on their own. 
One notable example is Egbert, the archbishop of the German town of Trier. Egbert's services were being constantly interrupted, and not just by his congregants giggling at his name. While he delivered his sermons, swallows would flit through the cathedral, chirping and singing and, to use the official terminology, sacrilegiously defiling his head and vestments with their droppings. Egbert got so tired of birds pooping on his head while he was trying to share the word of the Lord that he anathematized the swallows, barring them from entering the church on pain of death. If this seems like a strange way to use powers granted to you by the Lord God in heaven, you're not wrong, though you also probably haven't played Dungeons and Dragons before. Keep in mind, though, that Trier Cathedral, where Egbert gave his sermons, also attracts pilgrims looking to pray to relics including the sacred sandal of St. Andrew and the preserved head of St. Helena. A thousand-year-old bird curse is at best the third weirdest thing happening in this building. Occasionally, animals being threatened with anathema were given some warning before the hand of God was called down upon them. In 1516, insects in the French village of Troyes were found responsible for damage to local crops. Before the anathema was pronounced, though, the swarm was given a very generous six-day grace period, during which they could depart freely, uncursed by the Lord. As to how effective these anathemas actually were, the jury is out. In 1545, a horde of weevils was laying waste to the vineyards of St. Julian, near France's border with Italy. An anathema was pronounced, to be accompanied by several days of fasting and prayer by local villagers. After these religious observances, the insects departed. Now, whether you believe that's because they were banished by the power of God on high, or they had just eaten every grape leaf in the area, is up to you. Decades later, though, the insects returned. The case, once thought settled law, was reopened, leaving behind a sterling example of what these animal trials looked like. The new case began with a formal statement of complaint brought by local official Francois Amenet, who wrote in part, Formerly, by virtue of divine services and earnest supplications, the scourge and inordinate fear of the aforesaid animals did cease. Now they have resumed their depredation and are doing incalculable injury. We do appear anew and beseech the officials first to appoint another advocate for the insects, and secondly, to visit the grounds and observe the damage and then to proceed with the excommunication. Representing the weevils, attorney Pierre Rimbaud responded that while the damage his six-legged clients caused to agriculture was regrettable, they were well within the rights granted them by God. Since, as we read in the sacred book of Genesis, the lower animals were created before man, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, it is therefore evident that the accused, in taking up their abode in the vines of the plaintiffs, are only exercising a legitimate right conferred on them at the time of their creation. Furthermore, it is absurd and unreasonable to invoke the power of civil and canonical law against brute beasts, which are subject only to the natural law and the impulses of instinct. As the judge considered these arguments, and believe it or not, the judge actually spent weeks considering these arguments, a second resolution was also being worked on. One day in June, the residents of St. Julien gathered in the town square to propose a compromise with the insects plaguing their vineyards. On the advice of the prosecutor, 
the townsfolk offered up a piece of land that would be set aside solely for the weevils, where they could reside unmolested, an early animal sanctuary of a sort. We'll never know whether this compromise would have worked, though, as the deal was roundly rejected by defense attorney Rambaud, on the grounds that the place was sterile and neither sufficiently nor suitably supplied with food for the support of said animals. Sadly, the final decision in this proceeding has been lost to time. The last pages of the record have been eaten by some animal, which is either an accident of history or a brilliant gambit by a weevil defense team faced with an unwelcome legal precedent. Now, two things are notable from these proceedings. One is that neither lawyer in the case contests the insect's right to eat and to exist, just whether they're welcome to do it at the cost of St. Julien's harvest. Perhaps more surprisingly, though, is that no one involved expresses any doubt that the church, if it decided to, would be able to move the weevils from one spot to another and to keep them there. And it should go without saying, not all anathemas worked out that way. In cases where curses didn't stick, local bishops had a convenient backup plan. If animals proved resistant to banishment by anathema, it was taken as proof that they were more than just dumb beasts. No, those animals were a form of divine wrath being visited upon those that they troubled. The presence of these creatures was the will of God, and no bishop or judge in the world could override it. Only long periods of soul-searching, religious observance, and atonement could vanquish them. The timeline for that, of course, was in the hands of the Lord. The other problem with anathema was that you needed a priest to enact it. And if the nearest religious official was a few villages distant when an infestation fell on your house, you were just out of luck. So, to get around that clerical red tape, many cultures developed do-it-yourself methods of pest control. Banishing rituals that exist at the intersection of a magic spell and an eviction notice, and have a lot in common with the proceedings at St. Julien. Sometimes read aloud, and sometimes written, these short texts always address the animal in question formally, as individuals on equal footing with the complainant. They acknowledge that the vermin have a right to exist, just that they aren't welcome in their current dwelling. And it isn't enough just to tell the animals to leave. These documents also must provide them with a suggestion on where they should make their new home. Now, if you want to try a medieval mousetrap yourself, you're in luck. The Georgica, an Islamic text detailing agricultural best practices from the 9th century, includes a form letter for evicting unwanted rodents. One that threatens not only divine intervention, but weirdly specific violence. Take a piece of paper and write on it these words, I adjure you, O mice who dwell here, not to injure me yourselves, nor to permit any other mouse to do so. And I make over to you this field. Here, the author would write a description of a nearby field. But should I find you staying here after you have been warned, with the help of the mother of the gods, I will cut you into seven pieces. Now, before you write this off as a relic of old-world superstition, you should know that a strongly worded letter was considered perfectly reasonable means of pest control in 19th century Maine as well. In 1892, the Journal of American Folklore 
reproduced the following letter, dated October 31, 1888, and addressed to Messrs. Rats and Company. Having taken quite a deep interest in your welfare in regard to your winter quarters, I thought I would drop you a few lines which might be of some considerable benefit to you in the future, seeing that you have pitched your winter quarters at the summer residence of Number 1 Seaview Street. I wish to inform you that you will be very much disturbed during cold winter months, as I am expecting to be at work throughout all parts of the house. I shall take down ceilings, take up floors, and clean out every substance that would serve to make you comfortable. Likewise, there will be nothing left for you to feed on, as I shall remove every eatable substance, so you had better take up your abode elsewhere. I will here refer you to the farm at number 6 Incubator Street, where you will find a splendid cellar, well filled with vegetations of all kinds, besides a shed leading to the barn, with a good supply of grain where you can live snug and happy. Shall do you no harm if you heed my advice. But, if not, shall employ rough-on-rats. The journal records that this note was rolled up, dipped in grease, and jammed into a rat hole to alert its unwelcome tenants of their eviction. And it further reports that the letter worked. At least for the owner of number 1 Seaview Street. Those living at number 6 Incubator were presumably less enthused with the results. There are places where a formal letter simply won't do, though, and a trial was seen as a necessity for some problem animals. Bartholomew Chesney, who defended not only rats, but also domestic animals and livestock during his career, advised that animals should always be tried by church courts, except in cases where blood had been shed. Sad to say, there were plenty of these. When it came to violent crimes like murder and assault, the animal culprits most often found in court weren't particularly fearsome. They were mostly pigs. In medieval Europe, swine became a popular source of meat not because they were particularly tasty, but because they were easy and cheap to raise. Unlike cows and sheep who needed pasture to roam and grass to munch on, pigs weren't picky. They would live anywhere and eat anything. During the 15th and 16th centuries, it wouldn't have been uncommon to see pigs roaming the streets, rooting up meals from piles of trash with no owner in sight. The problem with the pig's willingness to eat anything, though, was that it was a willingness to eat anything. In medieval Europe, anything included people's fingers, ears, and the occasional unattended baby. Pigs that attacked or killed humans weren't simply slaughtered like their fellows, though. Instead, they were brought before courts. Witnesses were called against them, and cases were presented for them by attorneys for the prosecution and the defense. And lawyers took these cases more seriously than you might expect. One prosecutor argued, successfully, that a pig's crime was made more serious because it had consumed an infant on a Friday when eating meat was forbidden by church law. The punishment for eating a baby and aggravated eating a baby, though, were identical. Convicted pigs were put to death. Rather than being slaughtered like their stymates, though, murderous pigs were executed using the same methods as human criminals. A pig that ate a child in a Paris suburb was burned at the stake in 1266. In 1386, 
The same crime doomed another pig to death by hanging. I'll spare you the scores of examples of similar crimes and punishments, which are depressing both in their frequency and their similarity. It is worth noting, though, that their grimmest appetites weren't the only thing that resulted in legal trouble for pigs. In 1379, one porker was sentenced to death by hanging, for eating not a child, but a consecrated wafer. And it wasn't just the executions of pigs that echoed human punishments. Condemned pigs were also held in the same jails as their human counterparts. Records from a 15th century French jail show that room and board for a pig awaiting its death sentence were the same as that charged for a human prisoner, as if being a prisoner in a 15th century French jail needed to be more demeaning. Capital crimes didn't always result in capital punishment for animals, though. When two herds of pigs killed a swineherd's son in 1379, the entire group was sentenced to death. Even those which the court admitted had only watched the attack, not participated in it. The conviction was appealed by the pig's owner, and as a result, the Duke of Burgundy himself pardoned all but three pigs, those who had launched the assault. Such acts of mercy for convicted animals were rare, but they weren't unheard of. For many years, it was customary for the animal victims of bestiality to be put to death as parties to the crime. During the 1750 trial of one Jacques Ferron for committing lewd acts with a donkey, the local parish priest testified that he had known the donkey for several years and was, quote, willing to bear witness that she is, in word and deed, and in all her habits of life, a most honest creature. This piece of testimony, which seems to be unique in the history of the law, resulted in the donkey's acquittal on all charges. Meanwhile, Jacques Ferron, unable to call any such glowing character witnesses on his behalf, was hanged. While animal trials became less common, they never entirely left us. Over the years, a staggering number of pigs, along with wolves, cows, goats, sheep, Worms, leeches, locusts, roosters, mourning doves, and other animals were brought to trial in human courts, even in relatively modern times. In 1864, a pig was put to death in what is now Croatia for eating the ears of a one-year-old baby. Thirteen years later, a New York judge dismissed criminal charges against an organ grinder's monkey on the grounds that it was a monkey. A 1906 trial in Switzerland found a father and son tried for murder alongside their co-defendant, the family dog. All three were convicted. Even the 21st century isn't immune to animal trials. In 2008, a Macedonian beekeeper was being harassed by a bear that had repeatedly raided his hives. These burglaries went on for years, and numerous efforts to scare the bear off, including blasting music described as Serbian turbo folk, met with failure. At the end of his rope, the beekeeper sought a legal remedy, filing charges against the ursine prowler. While the animal still proved too wily to be caught, the Macedonian legal system did not abandon the case. In May 2008, the bear was tried in absentia and convicted of theft and criminal damage in a court in the city of Bitlow. It remains at large a fugitive from justice to this very day.
Menagerie is written and produced by Ian Chan. That's me. Today's theme music was The Year by Defiance Ohio off of their really excellent album, The Great Depression. If you like today's show, do us a favor and tell a friend about it. You can also subscribe to the show on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you do listen on iTunes, be a pal. Rate and review the show. It only takes a second, and it really helps other people to find us. Just one more thing before I go. This episode of Menagerie was also taped as a live version at Steel Stacks in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania for their Nerd Night event, which is hosted by my good buddy Glenn Tickle, uh, who is a very funny comic. We're not going to put the live episode up on the RSS feed, so if you're just subscribing, you won't get it, but you are going to be able to hear that on the new Menagerie website at menageriepodcast.com. So, if you feel like listening to the live version of this, which has some laughing and some stumbling, and I think also maybe a little bit of swearing, but not like too much, uh, go to menageriepodcast.com and you can listen to that episode and all the other episodes right there. Thanks again for listening, everybody.